Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm your host, Paige Donner. You're listening to the original radio show and podcast about food and wine, broadcast from Paris, France. Paris Good Food and Wine, we delve into the topics of food, wine, and all their related subjects, talking with an array of people whose expertise both pepper and help ferment the food and wine scene in Paris, France, and the world at large. We're glad you can join us here for the delicious stories we bring you on Paris, good food, and wine. Please leave your comments, reviews, and suggestions. You can also contact us at our Twitter, at Paris Food Wine, or on our website, parisfoodandwine.net, or on my Instagram page, P-A-I-G-E, Food Wine. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and wherever you download your podcasts. Our Global Collective Astronaut Moment. That's our theme for this episode 56 of Paris Good Food and Wine. As we ease out of confinement and into what? Well, that remains the question still for most countries worldwide, still at threat by this pandemic. And it certainly remains the question here in Paris even though most parts of France have begun deconfinement as of May 11th. But spending a couple moments in a very close and confined space got me thinking of the astronauts and what they go through as a matter of course. So as I was researching NASA's veggie program, which our two guests, Joya Massa and Matt Romine, both scientists at the NASA Kennedy Space Center in Florida, will be speaking to us at length about, I came across anecdotes from several astronauts. These morsels of advice offered by a number of NASA astronauts were about how to better cope with being cooped up in a small space for lengths of time. Joya and Matt touch on some of these tips, specifically how gardening, even in a confined space, offers oodles of psychosocial benefits, and in plain speak is simply good plant therapy. Their veggie program has their astronauts growing plants in space, edibles such as lettuce and baby leafy greens. NASA is also developing ways to eventually create greenhouse modules on the moon, and even Mars, where fresh food for human space colonizers can be cultivated. You can find the veggie fact sheet link in our show notes at Local Food and Wine. That's localfoodandwine.wordpress.com. Matt and Joya also share tips with us home gardeners and urban-dwelling wannabe gardeners on what it takes to start a little edible plant habitat at home, in a pantry, on a balcony, or even on a kitchen counter. And for any and all educators and students listening in, they mention some of their student-friendly programs, of which NASA is quite a champion. You can find the links to more info about NASA's at-home and at-school educational materials and projects in our show notes again. And also, of course, at NASA.com 
www.thepowerhouse.gov. For the second part of our show, we return to our recent theme of story time. This time, we turn to ancient Greek mythology, namely the story of Demeter and her daughter Persephone. Now, many of you organic food enthusiasts probably already know the Demeter label as being a respected one for quality control in organic and biodynamic foods. So, here's a refresher as to the origins of that name and how this ancient Greek goddess relates to agriculture, seeds, crops, and food. Thank you again for joining us for this latest episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. We're always thrilled to hear from you, so please leave your reviews, comments, and questions on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And also, of course, at our Local Food and Wine website. That's localfoodandwine.wordpress.com. We're also on iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Stitcher. So, cheers to our collective and shared global astronaut moment. May we emerge from this with strength, health, and more compassion for our fellow human being. So here up, we're speaking with Joya Massa, Life Sciences Project Scientist and Veggie Project Lead at NASA's Kennedy Space Center, and Matthew Romine, project scientist for space crop production at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. Season 6 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. IOT, the Internet of Things. IOT Shipping tracks your value assets using the Internet of Things technology that gives you data points based on temperature, movement, and geolocation. For more information, contact us at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. So well, we're speaking with Joya Massa and Matthew, or Matt Romaine, and they're both with NASA. Joya, let's start with you. Can you... Um, you know, introduce yourself, your full name, and your actual title there at the at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. Sure. My name is Joya Massa, and I'm a life sciences project scientist at Kennedy Space Center, and I focus on the area of space crop production research. Okay, great. And, and Matt, let's um, move to you. What about you, full name and your title? Yeah, I am Matt Romine, and I am also life sciences, project scientist, working on space crop production at Canadian Space Center. Okay, wonderful. Oh, so I sort of mispronounced your name. Maybe that was a bit of a Freudian slip saying it, Romaine, uh, given that we are going to be talking about lettuce. So, sorry, it's Romaine. I I have considered changing it to (laughs) Romaine. Okay, all right. So, we're here. uh, You guys um, have uh, very graciously uh, joined the podcast to do this interview about your veggie program, which is quite extraordinary. You guys are growing vegetables in space. So that's going to be um, my first question to you is basically just um, explain to to myself and our listeners 
what is the vegetable production system and what does it have to do with the International Space Station? Joya, let's start with you and then Matt, you can take it from, from her. Okay, um, so veggie, uh, our vegetable production system, is a, a small plant growth chamber on the International Space Station. Uh, the first veggie unit was launched to the space station in 2014, and we now have two units up there. And it's designed to be a really simple plant growth chamber, um, essentially an astronaut garden, where the astronauts can grow and, and harvest um, up to about six plants in each veggie unit. Uh, it has red, blue, and green LED lighting and a fan to move the air around. And then everything else is really done passively in veggie. So the watering is passive. Uh, it has these transparent, extensible bellows that help contain um, humidity and, and, and plant uh, and the, the plants and you know any debris. Um, and then the crew can lower those bellows. They're attached by magnets to access the plants. And we've been growing a number of crops in veggie since 2014, um, mostly leafy green crops, as well as um, we did grow some zinnias. In addition to growing the food crops, veggies also used for some space biology science. So we have space biology investigators that will grow small plants in petri dishes or magenta jars in veggie. Um, and there was even um, a European um, space agency project uh, that Thomas Pesquet ran where he grew um, different seeds. This was an outreach project, uh, lentil, mustard, and radish seed germination in veggie. And we've also had some algae growing in veggie on purpose um, in, mm -hmm. in bags, different bags of algal, algal culture. So it's really a multi-purpose platform, um, but our goal is to use it as a crew garden and to really understand some of the aspects of space crop production that we need to figure out for future astronaut food production. Okay, okay. And, and Matt, just to, um, since that was a pretty comprehensive answer, Matt, just to try to go dig down a little bit deeper, can you give us um, the difference or explain the difference between what are the veggie units and what is the advanced plant habitat? Well, we refer to the, the APH as veggie's big brother, much bigger brother. As Joya pointed out, the veggie hardware is, is relatively simple. It's a light, it's a fan, passive watering no sensors or anything like that. The APH is a whole different machine. It has 180 sensors. It's entirely sealed off from the cabin. It can maintain its own atmosphere. Um, it has much more powerful lights, sensors all over the place. You know, we can measure things like moisture content in the roots, in the air, CO2 levels. We can scrub different volatile organics in the APH hardware. If you really want to just do it, do a research experiment where you want to rule out every other factor but gravity. APH is a very powerful for doing that. Wow, interesting. Okay, yeah, you you're sound, you you guys sound so much like space scientists and, and not really so much like like farmers or or you know backyard gardeners. <laughs> so that's good. I mean, it's, it's really making a distinction. You know, um, Lee J was nice enough, your um, public information person was nice enough to send me some um, supplemental information about what, what you're doing. And one of the quotes I saw was um, this one. It says, the ability to grow a supplemental food crop is a solution to the challenge of long-duration missions into deep space. 
So can you both elaborate on this statement and then explain how your veggie program addresses this? This time, let's start with Matt, and then we'll go to Joya. Yeah, so what that quote is getting at is a study that was published recently looking at over a three-year mission that there is nutritional degradation in the stored astronaut diet, things like vitamins B1, C, vitamin K, potassium, for instance. And in-situ grown crops are a solution to this, where we can, you know, leafy greens, for instance, are very high in three of those four nutrients I just listed. The only one that they're not high in is thiamine. So it has, you know, the possibility to fill these gaps on long missions. And the thing is, with long mission, say the Mars, we're going to be pre-staging food out there a year beforehand. So by the time the crew gets the food on the way back to Earth, for instance, the food could be, you know, four or five years old. So there's definitely a window here for crop production. The veggie hardware is, you know, the veggie doesn't like provide food per se in ISS. The crew loves it, but it's really a very, very useful tool for us to study how we're going to do things in the future. You know, things like solving problems with water, seed storage, things of that nature. Okay, interesting. Joya, any, anything to add there? Well, Matt covered the nutrition, you know, really well. Um, and nutrition is obviously, uh, you know, the, the, the most important thing that we're worried about. We want to make sure that the astronauts, um, you know, as they return from Mars or any, on any long-duration mission, have a, a complete, you know, nutrient balance in their diet. But plants may have some other things to offer as well. Um, you know, adding variety to the diet, I think, can be very important. They, they have about 200 different packaged foods, about 180 foods and about 20 or so beverages and condiments. And it's a, it's a very good diet. As Matt said, the nutrition degrades, the quality also degrades over time, you know, and so the texture and some of those things may break down with long duration storage. But um, they're also on about an eight day rotation for this diet. And over time, you know, when studies have shown that people eating the same food for, for long periods get menu fatigue. Mm. So we're actually working with um, the food lab at Johnson Space Center to try to identify if plants can help counteract menu fatigue. A number of the astronauts on the space station right now, where, where the food's not stored for these long durations, still lose weight during their mission. And these really aren't people that need to be losing weight. These are people at the peak of their physical performance when they fly in space. And they're exercising multiple hours a day to maintain their bone and their muscle mass but they're still losing some weight. And so that's a concern um, because it could be due to, to menu fatigue. So we're hoping that plants could help give variety to the menu and, and inspire some new you know, creations from the packaged diet um, that, that could really help people maintain their, their weight and their health effectively in space. Okay, yeah, no, that's interesting. That's another quote I saw in your press release or your press PDF was uh, th this one. NASA is building up the ingredients for a pick-and-eat salad, or rather a pick-sanitize-and-eat salad since there's no way to cook on the station yet. Uh, that, that, that little quote kind of made me smile. And then there was something, there's another thing too. I'm wondering, where are you guys looking in the, in the future? And here's my specific question, and that is, um, so the, as I understand it, the veggie hardware as that you've referenced a few times on your answers and the Veg01 experiment, it, 
It flew to the space station as commercial cargo aboard NASA's commercial resupply services SpaceX CRS-3 mission. I, I think I've got those facts correct. Uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, though, but so my question for you is, what do you guys see as more feasible as of now? Um, I, are you focusing on one direction or, or another? Meaning, is it going to be cargo spaceships of fresh produce flown to the moon and eventually Mars? Or are you actually looking at, you know, actual growing habitats in these zones? Or is this too much still of like a science fiction type of a question? Um, I don't know, uh, Joya, why don't you take this one first since Matt took the first lesson? Okay. Um, so, you know, we, we're going to have different scenarios depending on where you're at at the time. So we're thinking of it as kind of an evolvable situation. And what we're learning from Veggie and from the Advanced Plant Habitat is really guiding the direction of our future crop production systems. So we will have some type of crop production on, say, a transit vehicle to Mars. You know, this is your kind of your six-month trip to Mars and back from Mars, where you're in microgravity. Uh, you're also going to be subjected to some of the things um, like deep space radiation on this trip. But microgravity is really the big one because that affects how to water your plants, how to, you know, how, how air movement works, how, 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 you know, fluids and, and air can mix. And those are all really important things for growing plants. Um, when we're on the surface of Mars or on the surface of the moon, we'll have some gravity. We'll have partial gravity and we may have a bit more space. So, for, for the vehicle, space is going to be very restricted, and it'll probably be some sort of pretty small, you know, a meter squared or meter cubed or less plant growth area, whereas a surface system might be a larger system. Um, you've got a little more room perhaps to spread out. Maybe ultimately on the surface of, of Mars or on the surface of the moon, we'll have a dedicated plant growth module. The entire module could be launched by a rocket, you know, and um, put on the surface. Or there's been a lot of work on things like 3D printing habitats from regolith, which is essentially the dirt on Mars or on the moon. Um, and you can, you can melt that and make bricks, you know, or 3D print um, a structure. So perhaps a, a greenhouse be printed. So those systems are a little bit farther out there in terms of our planning. But when you have a little bit of gravity, a lot of the challenges that, that we anticipate with watering, for instance, um, go away. So we're, we're kind of looking at different scenarios for different locations, depending on, um, you know, how, how many people will be there, how long they'll be there. And, and so, so we're basically tackling a lot of challenges with an eye to how, how they would be tackled in different locations, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's fascinating. Fascinating. Matt, did you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, so I think your original question was asking if we would be more growing the, the fresh crops in place or shipping them on cargo. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. If, if the goal, think, if the ultimate goal is to have, um, like, like, she, like Joy was just talking about 3D printed, you know, like agricultural 
modules on the moon or is it actually actually like to grow and transport and sort of deliver fresh food to people at the space station yeah i mean i think in the near term it'd be you know more like we have a smaller systems on spacecraft or habitats but eventually you know having these these modules kind of flowing around that every so often loop around with you and have a resupply would be tremendously awesome wow that's so that sounds that i just got a jetson's picture in my in my brain <laughs> you can tell i don't have much of a science background but this is really fabulous what you guys are talking about okay cool so now um so for the last question i, I want to sort of switch our attention if i may back to earth in this really uh well to use the key word of today unprecedented situation that we all find ourselves in but also there has been um it seems to have rebooted the passion for gardening at least in the u.s but um living here in paris i of course have no more space than a tiny little uh you know less than one cubic uh, square foot of a, of a balcony so i have i have gardening envy currently and that's what I wanted to actually ask you guys about. Um, I, I am aware of some uh, projects that have been coming out of M MIT of late for this controlled environment agriculture. And it seems like the, what the science that you guys are doing um, has actually sort of the innovations that you're doing at the Kennedy Space Center and, and NASA with your veggie program has inspired some of these controlled environment agriculture products. Is there any way that we can adapt some of what you guys are doing for the astronauts to urban urban gardening, growing you know, growing tomatoes in a controlled environment setting in, in a city, for example? I don't I don't know who wants to take that first. Uh, I, I can take that. Okay. So NASA's actually been doing research in controlled environment agriculture for several decades since late sixties and seventies even. Uh, things like horticulture LED lighting was actually a technology developed in NASA funds. So, um, you know, you're, you're talking about you have a small amount of space, um, very simple like LED lights, pots, you know, bottom watering. You can actually grow crops indoors for relative low price. I mean, I have a setup in my pantry that was $100 off the internet, and I'm able to grow, you know, about 18 to 20 leafy greens in there at a time. Ooh. And then, you know, things like control-release fertilizers, that's what we use a lot in space where you're not really, you don't have to micromanage, you know, dosing and things like that. You just, you know, throw the little pellets in there and it releases over time. Also very easy to use. You don't have a big yard or something to plant crops in. I'll just add, you know, a lot of the crop varieties that we're testing are the ones that are commercially available for, you know, for the general public for container gardening. So if you look through, you know, a seed catalog um, and you look for things that will grow well in containers, um, which are very suitable for, you know, for the home gardener, that, that's the, the type of crops that we're using as well. We want things that are, that are dwarf, um, you know, very compact, but, but still very productive. And also they have a pretty fast growth time. So, um, you know, I think that's something else that, that the home gardener can, can, can easily look for. Um, but, but another thing that I want to mention, and Matt, I think, would be able to talk more about this, is one of the, the, the types of crops that NASA is currently looking at um, 
for, for shorter-term solutions and for nutrient supplementation um, are called microgreens. So these are the, the you know, 7- to 14-day-old young plants that are very nutritious and, and, and full of flavor. And so, Matt, maybe you can talk a little bit about those. Yeah, when we're looking for the absolute most space-efficient crop we can possibly find to deliver flavor and nutrition for astronauts, um, you know, one of them we kind of came across with microgreens. It's more or less a chia pet principle to growing plants. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're just you're just growing mats. You know, very thin amounts of soil. I mean, you, a lot of times you can even grow them on things like felt and hemp burlap and things like that. Uh, don't use a lot of water. Don't use much fertilizer. Reach maturity in seven to ten days. And as Joy said, wide variety of flavor. It's pretty much anything that you can grow as a leafy green. You can grow as a microgreen. So you've got literally hundreds of choices out there. But that we we have several um, educational challenges going on right now where we have schools and such growing microgreens or, well, these days kids growing from home trying to grow microgreens. So if I was to get started, that'd be a, a really easy one to get into. It's very simple. That's great. That's great. Well, I'll follow up with Lee on that for a, a link to microgreens because maybe you have something about that. I know you have like a whole section on your NASA.gov site for education. So um, maybe we can we can research on that a little bit more. That's inspirational because also too what you said about it, you know, for like a hundred, you know, bucks um, getting, you know, setting it up in your pantry. Because some of the things I've seen so far for controlled environment agriculture at home are actually, um, you know, these really quite expensive get-ups, you know, where an LED system is, LED light system is fitted into a, you know, a certain kind of container, and they start at like $800, which is, you know, that's cost prohibitive for, for most of us little home gardeners who just kind of want some fresh basil. Well, and, huh? one thing with LED lights when you're pricing them online is a lot of the LED lights you see that are really expensive are meant for growing things that are not food crops. So you can use the cheaper ones for growing food crops. You don't use as much light as. Okay. All right. All right. Well, okay. That's a good tip. Um, well, I was going to open it up and just say any last thoughts, you know, and I, and I also wanted to say one of the reasons, one of the prompts to reaching out um, to you guys too was, well, I've been fascinated with this controlled environment agriculture topic for um, a while now. But also I thought this is kind of interesting since we've all been so confined in such, you know, in many of us in very small spaces for a length of time. I thought this is maybe the world's little bit of an astronaut moment, you know, like trying to, you know, get a little bit of a sense of what it's like for them to be in such confined spaces for such lengths of time. But anyway, um, that's my that was my little uh, prompt to reach out to you guys. Um, in addition to your your fast, the fascinating veggie um, project, but do you, Joya and Matt, do you have any last thoughts that you want to uh, leave with us in terms of your your programs or anything that you're doing? Yeah, um, you know, I I, just, I would agree with you that this this time of isolation and confinement is a bit bit of an astronaut moment, and there are a lot of neat lessons that the astronauts have learned that they've been sharing about how best to cope with this. You know, one of the things that, that we, we think plants might be important 
four is um, dealing with some of the stresses of, of long-term isolation and confinement. You know, having that little piece of green growing earth with you when you're living and working in this, this extreme and stressful environment might be very important. So we're starting to collect some data on that now and we'll be really interested to see how the astronauts, you know, discuss about how plants make them them feel you know we've had a lot of anecdotal evidence um, via via twitter and other mechanisms where they you know they've said they really enjoy having the plants around so this so they may be more than food um and and we're, we're trying to assess how important that is um another thing i would just like to say that that your listeners might find interesting is that uh, we're getting a lot of help from students on on a lot of the research we're a pretty small group at kennedy space center and you know, we have a lot of big challenges to tackle. And so we have um, student programs, you know, from, from college to high school, middle school, um, where students are helping us to, to design hardware and select crops for space. And, and then, you know, the promising ideas that come out of their research, then we, we test at higher fidelity. So, you know, we, we're really, um, we're just here kind of representing this, the group at Kennedy Space Center and then this this small army of, of wonderful student citizen scientists that we have out there. So we really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Matt, was there anything you, you wanted to, any last thoughts? <laughs> yeah, to go a little deeper into the uh, the psychosocial stuff Joy was talking about for growing plants and astronauts. Um, one thing that we think that could be helpful for is basically anchoring your notion of time. So on the ISS, for instance, there are 15 sunrises and sunsets every day on the way to Mars will be pretty much none. But while that's much more extreme than we have here right now with this COVID situation, I don't know about you guys, but my days just meld together. So having something growing, something that you're seeing develop, I, don't know, I think it just kind of anchors time and reality a bit for you. Yeah, that's a really wonderful sentiment. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more, you know? Yeah. From the day here in here in Paris, just from the day to day, um, watching the watching a flower bloom or even just the leaves come out, I mean, has been it, it's stunning how miraculous nature is when you actually start to pay attention again, you know. Definitely. I want to say really just a heartfelt thank you so very much, Matt and Joya and Emily J for um, you know giving me the confidence to do this interview and um, thank you for all the great work uh, you, you guys are doing. Super. Thank you. Well, good luck and, and, and enjoy Paris as much as you can. Hopefully you can get outside soon and enjoy a little more of nature. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah. you so Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure too. A pleasure too. All right. Be, be well. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Donner. You're listening to Paris, Good Food and Wine. The show is produced and broadcast from Paris, France. It's Paris's first ever homegrown English language radio show about food and wine.
there with Matt Romine, project scientist for space crop production at NASA's Kennedy Space Center, and Joya Massa, life sciences project scientist and veggie project lead at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. I have to say that in all my interviews I've done for this podcast, this one had me the most starstruck. Okay, pun intended. Seriously, though, I never thought in my wildest imagination I'd get the chance to speak with NASA scientists and certainly not about vegetable gardening in space. So I am hugely grateful for their time and consideration and am so very pleased I get to share this conversation with you, my listeners. IoT Shipping. IoT Shipping uses the Internet of Things technology to track and trace your value assets throughout the supply chain process. At each step of the way, through each point of chain of custody during the supply chain journey, your value assets, that is your products, are monitored by temperature, humidity, geolocation, and movement. Tracking and traceability is all in real time. We call this precision supply chain management so that you always know where your value assets are and in what condition they are in. Contact them for more information and for a quote at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Now you can find Paris Good Food and Wine on iHeartRadio, as well as on Spotify. And also, as always, on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and Stitcher. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. Be sure to check out our website at parisfoodandwine.net. Next, we hear the story of the Greek goddess Demeter. Demeter was the life-giving goddess of agriculture, grain, and harvest. She provided mortals with plants, food, and vegetables. She also gave them the ability to cultivate wheat. She showed Earth's inhabitants how to plant seeds, nurture them, and harvest them. Here now is the story of Zeus's wife, Demeter, and their daughter, Persephone.
listening to Paris Good Food and Wine with me, your host, Paige Donner. Persephone and Demeter. In ancient Greek mythology, the Demeter and Persephone story tells of the deep connection a mother shares with her daughter. The Genesis. As the legend goes, Hades rarely ventured out of the underworld, but the few times he did, he encountered Persephone, as she was the alluring daughter of Zeus and Demeter. From the moment he first set his eyes on her, he was drawn to her and instantly fell in love. So Hades went to his brother Zeus to consult him. Zeus had previously promised Hades one of his daughters in marriage, and when Hades told him that he wanted to marry Persephone, Zeus obliged. He knew, however, that Persephone's mother, Demeter, would never allow her daughter to marry the dark god of the underworld. Hades was heartbroken that he would never be able to have Persephone as his wife, so the two brothers hatched a plan that would see him marry the woman he desperately loved. The next morning, Demeter and her daughter descended upon the earth. The two were incredibly close, just as most mothers and daughters are, when girls begin to transition into womanhood. Demeter was the life-giving goddess of agriculture, grain, and harvest. She provided mortals with plants, food, and vegetables. She also gave them the ability to cultivate wheat. She showed them how to plant the seeds, nurture them, and harvest them. She even taught them how to grind the grain to produce flour, which they could turn into bread. Demeter left her daughter with the nymphs of the sea to watch over her while she went to tend to her earthly duties. Zeus knew that the nymphs would never let Persephone out of their sight for fear of Demeter's wrath, so he had Gaia plant an enchanting Narcissus flower in a nearby garden. As Persephone wandered away from her mother and into the garden, she saw the flower and was immediately drawn to its beauty. The Abduction No sooner had she stooped to pick the flower than the ground beneath her feet began to quake and a gaping crack soon appeared. As the crack widened, Hades and his chariot of black horses emerged from it and began charging towards Persephone. Before she could even muster a scream, Hades grabbed Persephone and took her down with him to the world of the dead. The nymph named Sion witnessed the abduction and tried to rescue Persephone, but there was nothing she could do. She was no match for Hades. Sion was so distraught over her friend's abduction that she cried until she melted into a pool of tears, forming the river Zion. When Demeter returned, she couldn't find her daughter anywhere. So she asked the nymphs about it, but they had no answer. Demeter was furious that they hadn't protected her daughter like they were supposed to. Her wrath rained down on the nymphs, and she cursed them with plumed bodies, scaly feet, and wings. They would no longer be called nymphs of the sea. They would henceforth be known as sirens. When Persephone's belt was washed up by the river Zion, Demeter knew that something dreadful had happened to her daughter. She roamed the earth for days on end, driven mad by her beloved daughter's disappearance. She searched endlessly, neglecting her duties to tend to the earth to nourish the mortals. Plants withered, animals died, and famine ravaged the earth, resulting in untold misery. The cries of the mortals reached Mount Olympus, and Zeus knew that he had to intervene to calm Demeter's wrath and spare humanity. Persephone, the Dark Queen Zeus sent Hermes to the underworld to bring Persephone back home to her mother. When he got there, he was surprised by what he found. 
Instead of finding a sorrowful, grief-stricken maiden, he was met with a radiant queen. During her time there, Hades had beautiful gardens built for Persephone. He treated her with respect and compassion, and she inevitably began to fall in love with him. She saw a side to him she had never seen before, and she embraced her new home, helping the spirits of the dead to cross over. When Hermes requested her return, Persephone was conflicted. On the one hand, she loved Hades and wanted to remain with him, but on the other, she loved and deeply missed her mother. Hades was terrified that if she was presented with the choice of staying with him or returning to her mother, he would lose. So he gifted her with six pomegranate seeds to eat, and she did. In Greek mythology, it was believed that if one ate food given to them by their captor, they would always return. Love conquers all. When Hermes brought Persephone back to Mount Olympus, Zeus asked her where she'd like to live. She expressed that she wanted to stay by her husband's side. Demeter was infuriated by her response and was convinced that Hades had something to do with it. She wouldn't have any of it. She made it known in no uncertain terms that if her daughter did not return to her, she would never again tend to the earth. Zeus decided that Persephone would split her time between her mother and her husband. Since she ate the six pomegranate seeds, Persephone would spend half the year with her mother at Olympus and the other half with Hades. The Changing Seasons Many believe that the Demeter and Persephone story explains the seasons of the year. During the time that Persephone spends away from her mother, Demeter causes the earth to wither and die. This time of year became autumn and winter. Persephone's arrival to be reunited with her mother signals a renewal of hope. It represents the rebirth of untold splendor and abundance. The earth, once again, becomes fertile and fruitful. IoT Shipping uses the Internet of Things technology to track and trace your value assets throughout the transport process. Data is monitored by temperature, geolocation, and movement so that you always know where your value assets are and in what condition they are in. Contact them for more information and for a quote at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Now you can find Paris Good Food and Wine on iHeartRadio, as well as on Spotify. And also, as always, on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and Stitcher. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Paris Good Food and Wine. I want to say a big thank you, a calm merci beaucoup to everyone who helped make this podcast possible. And that includes you too, our listeners. We greatly appreciate that you listen to us. We really do. So leave your comments, suggestions, and reviews 
on our website at parisfoodandwine.net. You can find our show notes at Local Food and Wine. That's localfood.wine. Also, localfoodandwine.wordpress.com. On Twitter, you can find us at localfoodwine and at parisfoodwine. So from your host and producer, me, Paige Donner, I want to wish you a bonne degustation and a toute et à tous à votre santé from Paris, good food and wine.